1 Samuel chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel, and we're going to be reading all of chapter 11. If you haven't been with us, we are working our way through 1 Samuel, which tells the story of the beginnings of kingship in Israel. It tells the story of, well, 1 Samuel, the king maker, and then the first king that comes along is Saul. And we are just sort of getting started into Saul's kingship. We're just getting started to see how he is faring. He was anointed king in chapter 10. And now we see the first battle, the first battle that he takes part in and, um, and organizes to help Israel defeat the Ammonites. We're going to read the entire chapter. So if you would, please stand, if you are able, as we read God's word. 1 Samuel Chapter 11. This is God's word. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told the news of the men of Jabesh and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. And he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. And then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put him, them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord at Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is God's word. You may be seated. Pray with me. Dear Lord, as we open our Bibles this morning, would you open our hearts to receive it, to be instructed, and to be shown your glorious grace that we so desperately need and the great power you have over all of our enemies. So bless us this morning as we hear you speak to us 
through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I still remember the day like it was last week. It was, a, it was a normal Tuesday in middle school, seventh grade, and I was going to school just like normal, and went to my homeroom class, and then went to my first class of the day like normal, and, but then all of a sudden we were called back into homeroom. Everybody had to go back to homeroom. And we turned the TV on, the teacher turned the TV on, and what came on the screen was images of two smoking skyscrapers in New York City. And these were burning, smoking. Uh, and we didn't know what happened, but they were the World Trade Center Twin Towers. And one teacher I remember was increasing my anxiety like crazy because she was running down the hall screaming that we're being attacked. And as reports came in that the Pentagon had also gotten hit that day, and as these towers eventually fell, it was painfully clear that this was no accident. But our country was really under attack. And a friend of mine was even rushed out of school that day because his father was on a business trip in New York City and they hadn't heard from him. So he was being rushed out in tears. It was the first time in my life that I recall ever thinking that I and we have an enemy. Right? That we have an enemy. That there are people in the world that hate us, hate our country, hate our religion, hate our culture, enough to fly planes in the buildings and kill thousands of people. For a kid who grew up in a time of relative peace, right, with no uh, draft, no, no Vietnam, no World War II, that was a shocking day. It was an eye-opening day uh, for many of us, I'm sure, if you were uh, around. Our enemies exist, and they want us taken off the map. They want us taken off the map. And once that reality sits in, that we have an enemy, that this enemy is working, scheming, strategizing for our demise, we have to do something, don't we? We can't just, it would be foolish to just, to just sit back. We have to figure out what our next steps are. Fight, flight, find help. Or our, our country's choice was clear. With the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, we've been combating terrorism in the Middle East ever since, to different degrees. But new leaders of these organizations continue to appear, and we continually go after them. Counterterrorism, as we call it, exists because of terrorist extremist beliefs. And as, as long as hate and violence exists, violent and evil acts will also exist. And as you dig deeper into why people do the things they do, why people do evil acts, the more apparent the problem can be summed up in the word sin. Rebellion against God and everything that God stands for. Sin is the great enemy that we can't defeat with military might or more laws or more surveillance and security. You can't execute a drone strike on sin. But the problem becomes uh, more difficult when you, when you understand that sin exists not just outside of our country, but within our national borders, within our own hearts, doesn't it? 
And so we have to come to the realization that the only, only the power of God can defeat the power of sin. And so we arrive at the one great need that we all have, all people, you and me, salvation, rescue from our sin. That's what we need. And there's one great hope that brings this rescue, this salvation. It's the power of God. And so that's the theme of our chapter in 1 Samuel 11, salvation, rescue. And so we're going to look at salvation in two ways, why it's necessary and why it's guaranteed through the power of God. Salvation, why it's necessary and, ha- and why it's guaranteed through God's power. Well, first let's look at salvation is necessary. Israel had enemies. Israel had people, nations, that wanted to wipe them off of the map. As we see clearly, this guy, Nahash, the Ammonite, was a bad guy. He besieged this small town of Jabeth, which is on the Jordan River in eastern Israel. And when they appeal for conditions for a peace treaty, because they're much smaller than him and than them, they, they appeal for conditions for a peace treaty in service to the Ammonites like, like a vassal to its lord. Nahash tells them the only condition for surrender that he will give them is that if he, can ta- if he takes out their right eye. And you may be wondering, why their right eye? Why do that? Well, if he did that, that would not only humiliate them, but also make them bad soldiers, since the right eye was essential for combat. Usually, most men were right-handed, right? So they held their sword with their right hand and their shield on their left side. And so as they're fighting, they guard their left side and they sight with their right eye. If you take out that right eye, they're really bad soldiers. So there's a, there's a reason for that. And we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that this is how Nahash operated. It's not in our Bibles, but it's some extra information. That passage in the Dead Sea Scrolls reads that Nahash, this king, had been oppressing the Gadites and Reubenites, two other tribes in Israel, gouging out their right eye of all the men and allowing Israel no deliverer. So this guy Nahash was cruel. He was ruthless, as many leaders are when they vie for power against other nations. So the men of Jabesh, Jabesh offer Nahash another plan. They say, give us seven days respite, and we may send messengers throughout all of Israel. And if there's no one to save us, then we'll give ourselves up to you. Well, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter, this is verse 4, they reported the matter to the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. This was scary. They were in distress. This was a bad, bad situation. Well, supposedly Nahash allows this offer to go forth, and the word eventually reaches Gibeah, where Saul is. But at this point, the people are in distress. They're outmatched, they're intimidated, and they're phoning a friend for help. A long-shot attempt at salvation. So Israel had true enemies, those who were attempting to crush and destroy them. But let's zoom out for a a second and think about uh, this on a universal scale, that, that it's not just Israel, but the world has an enemy. That there is a deeper evil that is at play here behind the actions, underneath the actions of Nahash. That his goal is to cause chaos and devastation. That he does not discriminate. He wants to cause as much pain and terror in the world until his time is up. His name is Satan, the accuser, the adversary, 
the devil. In the book of Job, we read in chapter 1, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come from? And Satan answered and said, from going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. See, Satan does his evil deeds all around the world, every part of the world. Revelation 12, he's called the deceiver of the whole world. We see the works of Satan everywhere in the evil acts of every society. So the world has an enemy, but God's people, the church, has enemies too. And the devil is clearly one of them as well. Paul warns us in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if you're here this morning, you're a believer in Christ, there is a target on your back. You have an enemy. There's a target on your family's back, your spouse's back, your children's back. There's a target on this church. So we need to ask ourselves and always ask ourselves, are we prepared for his assaults? Never be surprised at the assaults of our enemy. So so the devil is, is clearly an enemy of the church, but our own sin is also an enemy. Our own sin is actually the only enemy that can do ultimate damage. Satan can do a lot of horrible things, but he can't do what sin can do, which, which can condemn you to hell. It's the only enemy that can send you to hell. And every single one of us is born with that enemy. Romans five twelve, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death, Spread to all men because all sin. We sin, brothers and sisters, because we're sinners. We sin because it's in our nature to sin. And what is one of our most common responses to sin in our lives? Don't we often say, like the men of Jabesh, come make a treaty with us and we'll serve you? To our sin. We say that to our sin sometimes. We want to make peace with our sin. We want to coddle our sin and and see if in fact we can live peaceably with it. But our sin responds, just like Nahash, I'll have one condition for you. I'm going to gouge out your right eye and give you disgrace. And so we think that if we serve sin, we'll be happy. This is the promise our sin makes. But our sin is in the business of taking what it wants, of destroying and bringing shame upon us. Sin always wants its pound of flesh. You cannot make a treaty with an enemy such as sin. And so the men of Jabesh reveal a third option that many would think unthinkable in terms of military conflict, but we do it all the time with our sinful tendencies. We look to compromise with our sins. One of the great tricks of Satan is to to get us to think that we can dabble, right? that we can compromise, we can take a little bit of that sin and negotiate with it, and live with it. The great Puritan theologian John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. You cannot negotiate with your sin. But what about when sin threatens and lures us in with false promises? Where do we turn? Well, the men of Jabesh did the right thing by looking 
for help from the outside. They call on Israel, all the nation, to help as a last-ditch effort for salvation and rescue from their enemies. And here is where we see that it's only the power of God that can save from our enemies. So that's the first idea, that salvation is necessary. Everyone needs it. Sin exists in the world, in the church, and in our own hearts. But the good news this morning, and what we'll read in, in chapter 11, is that salvation in, in God, in Christ, is guaranteed. Lately, my daughter, Clara, has been practicing covenant-making. Uh, and it's been taking the form of a pinky promise. She likes pinky promises. I don't know why. You see, if you're not familiar, the pinky promise is this powerful ritual where two or more people take upon themselves covenant vows and covenant curses if the pinky promise is broken. And when making a pinky promise, you are guaranteeing that you will do what you say. Sometimes pinky promises involve important matters, such as receiving and giving of candy, watching a favorite TV show, or playing with a specific toy. So she's been interested in doing pinky promises. But you see, all of life has this uh, guarantee or this this promise-giving. All of life and most of human interaction involves making promises, doesn't it? And guarantees to one another. But in every human covenant, there are provisions for when the promise is broken. Amends must be made. Why? Because all human promises are prone to being broken. We forget that we made a promise. We get sick. We can't make it to the recital or the game. We get distracted with life. We fail to live up to what we say. I don't know if, uh, if you guys read the memoir Glass Castle, The Glass Castle, or it's also a movie. But in her memoir, The Glass Castle, Jeanette Walls tells her story of growing up with an abusive alcoholic parents who constantly moved around the country and couldn't keep a steady job. They were in poverty. Her father always promised her, I guess he was a type of engineer, had an engineering mind, he promised her that he would build her a glass castle that he found, well, when he found gold out west and got rich. But they kept hearing this promise over and over again, year after year as they got older, her and her siblings, and they realized that the dream of her father's project began to fade when they saw that it was a broken promise, that it, that it essentially, he was never going to do this. And in a final scene with her father, she says, I followed him into the living room where he spread the papers on the drafting table. They were his old blueprints for the glass castle, all stained and dog-eared. I couldn't remember the last time I'd seen them, and we stopped talking about the glass castle once the foundation we dug had been filled up with garbage. Her dad said, I think I finally worked out how to deal with the lack of sunlight on the hillside. It involved installing specially curved mirrors in the solar cells, but what he wanted to talk to me about was the plans for my room. He said, now that your sister's gone, I'm reconfiguring the layout, and your room will be a lot bigger. Dad's hands trembled slightly as he unrolled different blueprints. He had drawn frontal views, side views, aerial views of the glass castle. He had diagrammed the wiring and the plumbing. He'd drawn the interiors of rooms and labeled them and specified their dimensions down to the inches In his precise, blocky handwriting, I stared at the plans. Dad, I said, you'll never build the glass castle. He said, are you saying you don't have faith in your old man? 
Even if you do, I'll be gone. In less than three months, I'm leaving for New York City. And he said, what I was thinking was, you don't have to go right away, and I'll build a glass castle, I swear it. We'll all live in it together. It'll be a lot better than any apartment you'll ever find in New York City. I can guarantee that. And I said, as soon as I finish classes, I'm getting on the next bus out of here. If the bus stops running, I'm hitchhiking. I'll walk if I have to. Go ahead, go ahead and build the glass castle, but don't do it for me. And Dad rolled up the blueprints and walked out of the room. You see, people fail each other all the time in our world. It's a part of life as we know it. Perhaps you have a, a glass castle pro- type of promise someone had promised you that never came about. In fact, it's, it's actually refreshing and amazing and hope-giving when we find someone in our lives that we can trust and rely on, isn't it? But brothers and sisters, God is not like us. He's not sometimes trustworthy or even mostly trustworthy. He's completely 100% reliable. When he makes a promise, it comes about. It comes with a real, unbreakable guarantee. One of my favorite benedictions is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 through 24. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ And here's the the line I love. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God is a man of his word. And so where do we see this, this promise of salvation come about? Well, we see it when Saul stops farming and starts helping. Saul wakes up. Or more accurately, the Spirit of God wakes up. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. So he's farming again. He went back. He's sort of neglecting his duties, isn't he? He's sort of going back to his old job. And Saul said, what's wrong with the people? That they are weeping. They told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. So what's the first effect of the Spirit rushing upon Saul in this moment? Is that he gets angry. And that's important to realize that love, true love, gets angry sometimes, doesn't it? Love gets angry when the people you care about are in danger. How many of you have ever felt that kind of anger where you knew you had to protect the person you love? You saw them in danger. Sometimes it is wrong not to get angry. Paul Tripp writes, Jesus died to produce a culture of people who are so in love with him, so committed to his righteous cause, and so distressed by what sin has done to them in their world that they cannot help but be angry every day. This is is not the old selfish, unholy anger. These people are good and angry at the same time. He says this new anger is an unquenchable zeal for God's cause and an uncompromising distaste for sin. It's the anger of compassion that cannot help but seek to relieve people who are suffering from sin's damage. It's the anger of mercy that responds to the foolishness of sin with understanding 
and grace. It's the anger of restoration that refuses to condemn but believes that rebels can be built into the likeness of Jesus. It's the anger of service that finds delight in helping burdened pilgrims bear their load. It's the anger of peace that hates division that sin has birthed in our world and does everything it can to restore harmony. He says it's the anger of forgiveness that hates sin's guilt and despises its shame. He says Jesus died not only to free you from your anger, but to enable you to take up his righteous anger. Love gets angry, brothers and sisters, at times, but it's a righteous anger. It's it's a righteous anger. So we see Saul get angry when he sees these, these people threatened the people of his country. But we also see it's the Spirit of God rushing upon Saul, and that makes all the difference, doesn't it? That the Spirit of God is unstoppable. That when the Spirit moves and awakens, nothing is impossible, and nothing can stop him. That when God decides to act, everything is possible. When the cries of his people come into his ears and he acts, he will move heaven and earth to save them. Nothing can stop him. It's the idea of irresistible grace. That, that, that the Spirit can overcome the hardest, most sinful heart and soften it and draw it by his grace. Thinking back on your own conversion experience, when you have felt God draw you, I, I sometimes talk about it as being summoned. Being summoned into the presence of God. Something you cannot delay, you cannot change, you cannot um, argue with when God draws you to himself. It's irresistible. The Spirit works. Salvation is guaranteed. Jesus spoke to this truth when he was with Nicodemus. When Nicodemus, the leader uh, the Pharisee, uh, Pharisee leader came to him at night and he said, Jesus said to him, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, it was the Spirit of God that blew upon uh, Paul the, the persecutor and turned him into Paul the apostle, the church planter, the preacher, It was the Spirit of God that blew upon Peter. It rushed upon Peter and turned him from a a denier of Jesus to a rock for Jesus. And we see, as the Spirit moves upon Saul, verse 7, we read that dread falls upon the people. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. You may be interested or thinking, why, like, why chopped up oxen? Why, why would that create a dread and a fear amongst all the people of Israel? It seems kind of weird. Um, because if they didn't follow him, they would lose an ox, right? They would, an ox would get killed. Well, what Saul is doing and many commentators think this, is that what Saul is doing is he's referring back to a horrible atrocity that happened in Judges 19, recorded there. 
It's a horrible story. It happened in Gibeah, where, where Saul is actually from. But in summary, a concubine of a Levite was molested and murdered by the men of Gibeah. Horrible story. And her body was divided and sent to all of Israel in order to shock everyone into helping punish the men of Gibeah of Benjamin. And a civil war ensued, and the men of Gibeah were punished. Thus, Saul, by doing this, dividing this oxen, he's refreshing everyone's memory as to what happened back then by dividing it and rallying the nation to fight against Nahash and the Ammonites. And it worked, didn't it? It worked. The nation showed up and rallied against Nahash and delivered the men of Jabesh. And so we see that come about beginning in verse 8. And we see what Saul does. He mustered them in a town called Bezek. The people of Israel were 300,000, the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And they told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. And a few verses down, verse 11, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, so it's early morning, still dark, and they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And even those who survived were just one, or so that no two of them were left together. You just have some stragglers running away. They have a massive victory over the Ammonites. Salvation was brought about by the Lord which is what we'll read. So salvation should lead them to two things. The first thing it leads them to is that they renew their allegiance to the king. Way on to verse 14. Samuel said to all the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. They devote themselves back to the Lord again. Renew the kingdom. Say, this is the king you've given us, God. And they go back to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. And One thing is very important that Saul says. He says in verse 13, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul gives glory to the one who really did that work. That it was God himself who saved them that day. Some of the men wanted him to to put to death some of the worthless men back in verse 27 of chapter 10 who doubted Saul. He said, how can this man save us? Doubting God's choice. But Saul says, no, this is a day for rejoicing. So they renew their allegiance to the king, but they also rejoice. Why did they rejoice? Because they had real hope. They had real hope. And why can we rejoice? Because we have hope. We have hope. Christians have hope because salvation has arrived in Christ Jesus. What if I told you that I had a way to solve global terrorism? That there would never be another 9-11. There would never be a bombing. There would never be shootings ever again. Would you take it? Of course you would. But I can't promise you that. I can't make that promise just yet. Nor does Jesus make that promise to us just yet. But he has made a promise about a different enemy of ours a greater and more deadly enemy, the enemy that doesn't just have the ability to kill us, but to condemn us to everlasting torment. And at the cross, Jesus made good on that promise. At the cross, when Jesus died for the sins of all who would believe in him, he defeated our greatest enemy, 
He defeated the power of sin. I don't know if any of you play chess, but if you play chess, if you know the game, you know the importance of getting your opponent in checkmate. When you ever have a direct shot at, uh, at getting your opponent's king, you have a direct line of sight and you, and you can get the king, you say check to your opponent. And if you have them in checkmate, that's when your opponent tries to move their king, but any choice they make keeps them in a position of getting beat. They can move up, down, left, and right, but they can't win. They're always going to get beat. So at the cross, the victory of Jesus over sin became great, Satan's great defeat. He put him in checkmate. Any move Satan makes will end in the same result. Defeat. Any move Satan makes. Paul ends his great letter to the church in Rome with these words of hope. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Romans 16.20 Satan will be crushed under our feet soon. His end is coming. All the destruction, all the evil, all the atrocities we continue to see in the world and in our lives shouldn't ultimately scare us because they're Satan's final moves. It's all he's got left. He's already lost the game. The game is locked up. His defeat is sure, which means our victory is sure as we look to Christ. Our salvation, brothers and sisters, is guaranteed. Praise the Lord. We can bank upon that truth. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we thank you for this passage this morning that tells us of guaranteed victory when the Spirit moves, when the power of God moves, we have no need to doubt. Even with an imperfect king and an imperfect people, when God's people cry out to you, the all-powerful king, salvation is guaranteed. And thank the Lord we have that guarantee in the cross of Christ. May we exult in that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.